Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we look behind the headlines of the biggest stories in the world's most interesting region. I'm Andrew People. And I'm Vincent Nee. Well, the most shocking political development in the region this year so far is arguably the return to power by the military in Myanmar and the arrest of the country's former de facto leader Aung San Suu Kyi. The military's crackdown on protests and other resistance against the coup has so far resulted in nearly 900 deaths and thousands of arrests. In this episode, we are going to discuss the impact of the coup on the Southeast Asian nation, which is also often known as Burma, and how the current situation may develop in the months ahead. Now, this episode is produced in conjunction with London-based think tank Chatham House. And joining us today, we are very pleased to welcome back to the podcast Dance Minju. He's one of the best-known historians of the country and the author most recently of The Hidden History of Burma. Welcome back to Asia Matters, Dance. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Well, let's start with the current situation in Myanmar. You recently warned in an article in Foreign Affairs magazine that Myanmar is in danger of becoming a failed state. Can you tell us about conditions in the country and how you've reached this conclusion? It's very difficult to know how else to kind of describe the situation that's evolved over the past few months. I mean, proper government is barely functioning anywhere in the country. Since the coup at the beginning of February, we've seen the emergence of an enormous civil disobedience movement where people have refused to pay taxes, people have refused to engage with state institutions. We've seen the near collapse of the healthcare system with doctors having gone on strike and, and the army having occupied hospitals and other public health centers as well. We've seen schools shut, and even though some schools have now reopened, many teachers have remained on strike, and so very few students are attending schools. The general administration department that runs local government institutions is not able to assert its authority in many parts of the country. There have been physical attacks, violence, arson attacks against government offices in dozens of different places over the past few months. And so the kinds of conditions that we had seen over the past years, even over the past generations in ethnic minority areas of a very militarized environment, arbitrary arrest, government institutions not functioning properly, little or no access to justice, very little in the way of public services. Now we've seen throughout much of the country, including in many of the big cities of, of Myanmar as well. Mm-hmm. Now, it's been almost half a year since the coup was launched by the military junta. Do we know then a little bit more about what really motivated the junta to seize back control of the country? And what exactly are they trying to achieve here? I think what's really important to understand is that this junta is new, that we had junta rule back in the 1990s and 2000s, but that was under a very different generation of generals that the current generals are men in their 40s, 50s, 65 in the case of the commander-in-chief, who were either appointed about 10 years ago or who've been promoted up over the past few years. They see themselves as the guardians of the constitutional framework that was established, which wasn't a pure democracy, which was a mixed system of government. They were always, to some extent, uncomfortable with the idea of sharing power with civilians. Sharing power with President Thainsein, who was an ex-general five to 10 years ago, I think that was one thing. And they themselves at that time were also new in their jobs. 
But once Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy won the landslide victory at elections in 2015, and they found themselves in a cohabitation with their erstwhile enemies, I think it was always an uncomfortable thing. And relations between the commander-in-chief, General Mianlain, and Aung San Suu Kyi had deteriorated, especially since around 2016 or so. And I think that these generals genuinely believed that the elections that were held last year in November would return, if not a victory for pro-army parties, at least not the kind of landslide victory for the NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi that we saw. And so once that landslide victory happened, I think all bets were off in terms of exactly how the army was going to cope with the political future. And for a whole variety of reasons, the dynamic between Aung San Suu Kyi and the commander-in-chief deteriorated further over December and January. He was looking for ways, I think, to reassert the army's dominance over the political system. She, on the other hand, was determined to resist that and, if possible, push in the opposite direction. And when some pro-army parties came out with these allegations, which had never been substantiated, of widespread electoral fraud, he found an issue on which he could try or he wanted to try to pressure Aung San Suu Kyi. And that led to an ultimatum, and that ultimatum was not met, and that led to the coup in February. So that's a long way of saying that the coup itself was probably not inevitable, but the attempt by the army, once they had lost the election, to try to make sure that they could reassert a degree of dominance and not allow an even stronger Aung San Suu Kyi in a second NLD administration to take charge. I think that was very much part of the picture that evolved from late last year. Talking about Aung San Suu Kyi and her party, the National League of Democracy, they are struggling for their survival. What next for Aung San Suu Kyi as a political figure and also her party? Well, I think for a lot of people, I think for millions of people who voted for her, I think the hope is very much now that there can be a complete reversal of what's happened politically over the past six months. Many people dream of a successful revolution that will actually overturn this military administration and bring full democracy to the country. I think they hope very much that she would then be freed and be free to lead the country again. But the situation right now is, of course, very far from that. She's in detention together with the leaders of her party. Her trial has now started. The military administration has brought uh, a number of different charges, including corruption charges against her, and also charges related to the official secrets act. If she's found guilty, uh, she could find herself, and if the military administration continues, she could find herself many years in continued detention. And she's now 76 years old. And so on the one hand, I think people are, are still very hopeful that they can see a return to power of Aung San Suu Kyi. On the other hand, the current circumstances are quite grim. It's also very possible that she may see the coming few years still in detention together with many of her closest political allies. What then is the state of the broader opposition movement? We've seen these mass protests and strikes, but we've also seen this pretty harsh crackdown by the junta. Is there a coherent opposition movement emerging at all that does have the ability to change the situation? Or is it more a case of localized militias forming to resist the army in different areas of the country? You know, the country, even before the coup, was incredibly complex. At the top level, you had Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD, and you had the army generals. 
but you also have had all of these different ethnic armed organizations. You've had lots of local militia. You've had armed conflicts in different parts of the country. You've had many other political parties as well. And in a way, you know, there were already the kind of ingredients for fracture, for a kind of failed state scenario. What was holding the country together to some extent was this implicit kind of pact between Aung San Suu Kyi and the generals, uncomfortable, difficult as it was, that was there until the coup. With the breaking of that basic kind of pact, everything has now kind of fallen apart. And what was already a a very complex political landscape has become 10 times, 100 times more complex. So it's not the case that you have just the army on one side and then you have a united opposition on the other. Since the coup, the protests, the millions of people that you saw on the streets, on television over January, February, and March, that was kind of a reaction to the coup and a demand that the country go back to the status quo just before the coup release of Aung San Suu Kyi and everything else. But from March onwards, I think what we've seen are new, almost revolutionary currents of people demanding not just a return to the old status quo, but something very different as a genuine democracy, a federal democracy. Ethnic armed organizations themselves have begun to kind of reassess their own agenda and rethink their position and, and what they want the future to be. You've had mass mobilization at the civil society level. You've had dozens of different local militia now appear throughout the country as well. And you know, if you zoom into even just one locality, one region, with the different parties, different organizations, underground groups, militia groups, people's defense forces, the old NLD, other political parties, even for me, you know, who, who follows this day to day for many, many hours, it's almost impossible to follow properly. So I guess what I'm saying first is it's an incredibly complex situation. And the second is that, you know, what has emerged over the past few months is this parallel government, this national unity government, which was chosen by MPs that were elected in November. And they have tried to kind of unify the opposition, but at a time when it's incredibly difficult to do that, when so many people are in hiding, many people have gone into exile, and where the men with guns, you have the army on the one side, but then you also have these different ethnic armed organizations are still in many ways trying to also figure out exactly what their strategic direction should be. Yeah, it seems a very difficult situation for that national unity government to try and draw all these strands of opposition together. And all the while, the pandemic is carrying on. I mean, how is Myanmar now coping with COVID and efforts to get vaccines to people and so on? I think it's going to be catastrophic, or at least it's potentially catastrophic. I mean, we've seen what's happened or what happened in India and Nepal in recent months. And there's no reason to believe a COVID wave of that magnitude is not going to or is not sweeping over Myanmar. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence. Testing rates are very low, but there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that we are approaching a peak COVID wave over these days, not just weeks, but over these days. And the hospital system, the public health care system, as I mentioned, is close to collapse. So there's nothing like the ability to cope, even to just get people basic oxygen supplies. I don't know if we'll ever see the full scale of what may be unfolding right now, just because it's very difficult to follow and there isn't the testing and there isn't the public health care system. But it could be very bad. And beyond that, of course, vaccination rates are also 
very low. And so we have the real prospect that beyond this wave as well, that Myanmar could remain a country that is not properly vaccinated, not just for months like many other countries in the region, but perhaps for years to come. This is certainly a very concerning situation in terms of vaccination and also the COVID pandemic. But at the same time, the economy of the country is also in a grave situation. Can you tell us a bit more about what's going on with the economy? A lot of foreign ventures have pulled themselves out of the country. And what next for the economy in Myanmar? Yeah, I would say a few things. I mean, first is that, you know, over the past 10 years, especially from 2011 through the mid-decade, you saw substantial economic growth. But that was an economic growth that wasn't necessarily equitable. And you've seen a rise in inequality throughout this period as well, where the bottom 10, 20, 30 percent were still living in a very, very precarious way as migrant workers, as informal workers, barely above the poverty line of about $2 a day. It was also an economy that hadn't really undergone any basic structural transformation despite the growth. And so it was still largely dependent on the same sectors that had been there before, with some exceptions. And so the possibility of that economy snapping back in a way to an economy that's very reliant on resource extraction, the export of primary commodities, that's always been there. And that's a possible direction it might go in the future. And that's a very easy economy for a very small elite and an army elite to dominate. We've had an economy that since the beginning of the pandemic, like so many economies throughout the world, has faced enormous problems with the collapse of tourism, with disruptions to global trade, with the collapse of a multi-billion dollar remittance economy as well. And you have those people, the the bottom 20, 30 percent I mentioned, but also parts of the middle class facing severe stress and difficulty over this past 18 months and very little in the way of state support. People received almost nothing from the state. This is before the coup in response to rapidly declining economic conditions. And then since the coup, we've had an economy that's been in in a really, really steep downward spiral. So I think it's guesses from everyone in terms of how large that economic contraction has been. The estimates run from 10 to 20 percent. I think it could even be more. And at the center of that collapsing economy has been a financial system, a banking system that's been in real crisis with a lack of liquidity, with a central bank that's been unable or unwilling to provide liquidity to the banking system, with banking staff on strike for a long time, with bank branches closed, with government regulations that have limited withdrawals during what has been effectively a run on the banks, and also with internet and mobile data blockages, which has made any kind of online transactions also incredibly difficult. So To sum up, I mean, the economic picture is really dire. And I think for that bottom part of the population in terms of wealth and income, who were already in an incredibly dire state before the coup because of the pandemic, one can only imagine how they're even able to survive. I think the World Food Program has been estimating that three to four million people may be facing acute hunger over these weeks and months. And so I think we're facing a situation where the economic downturn is leading to multiple humanitarian emergencies throughout the country. And on top of that, there's this hugely complex political situation going on. And the political economy of Myanmar is also what you wrote about in your last book, The Hidden History of Myanmar, highlighting the problems created by its colonial legacy and then long years of military rule. 
Now, of course, it's a big question, but then just for outsiders, could you summarize that you know historical legacy and why it has made Myanmar such a tough country to govern from the outside? I mean, I, I could highlight a couple of different aspects of that colonial legacy. I mean, the first is weak institutions. And so Myanmar, or Burma, as it was, then became independent from Britain in, in 1948. And it was for over 100 years part of the British Indian Empire. It was a province of India. And the British, though, ruled the bulk of the country for a relatively small period of time compared to much of the rest of India or places like Singapore or Malaya. And the British were forced to leave essentially because of the Second World War and then Indian independence in 1947. They quit Burma a year later after India and left behind very weak institutions. And because of the very weak institutions, because civil war broke out between the communists and the government and then between the government and ethnic minority rebels, it was the army that filled that vacuum. And so partly because colonialism had destroyed all the institutions that had been there before and left behind only very weak institutions, a very powerful army grew up really right from the start and over the 1950s that then seized power and has been dominant ever since. So that's one. I think the second is on this issue of identity, this issue around ethnic identity, around racial identity, around a desire by the ethnic Burmese people, the Burmese-speaking Buddhist majority to kind of assert that identity first against the Europeans, the British, and the Indians, and then against the ethnic minorities in their country. I think that's been part of and really central to a failed kind of nation-building effort ever since independence in 19. 19- 48. And so, you know, on the one hand, it's that Burmese-speaking Buddhist majority of the country that has wanted to assert its identity in that colonial kind of framework. But then after independence, once they found themselves in a country where you have lots of other minority peoples, like the Shan and the Kachin and the Karen, to try to make themselves at the center of that was always going to lead to resistance and also armed resistance over these decades. And that's been a core part or a central part of the country's failings and problems ever since. So the social cohesion has always been a problem in the country. But then from 2010 onwards, we had Aung San Suu Kyi as a figurehead, a symbol for democracy. But then a few years later, after she came back to power, she was condemned for her position on the Rohingya issue. Where is this Rohingya issue now? And has her party, NLD, or Aung San Suu Kyi said anything about the Rohingya issue after the coup was launched? Well, she and the senior NLD leaders, the members of the Central Executive Committee, NLD members who had been chief ministers or ministers in the government, they have all pretty much all been incommunicado, in detention, under arrest, or in exile. And so they've said very little or have not been able to say anything at all. I think what's important to remember is that, you know, the NLD for most of its history over the 90s and and 2000s was also under extreme repression, were not able to develop policies, and really over those decades and by the 2010s had become a single issue party. I mean, they were for the end of military rule and the establishment of democracy in the country. They hadn't really developed ideas on things like the future of ethnic minorities in the country, much less the Rohingya themselves. But of course, we saw, you know, from 2013 onwards, this new round of violence in Rakhine State against the Rohingya. We saw the horrific ethnic cleansing, the killing of thousands of people, 
the refugee exodus. And she was criticized internationally, not domestically, for not doing more and especially not speaking up on that issue. And that didn't change up till the coup in, in February. Now, the National Unity Government, though, which has been formed, as I mentioned, as a parallel government, seen by many people as the legitimate government of the country because they were appointed or have been appointed by MPs that were elected in November, they have changed the position away from the NLD's position in terms of embracing the Rohingya people as a minority of the country, saying that citizenship rights will be given to the Rohingya, that they will want to see the return of refugees from Bangladesh. So that's quite a turn from where the NLD Aung San Suu Kyi government had been just a few months before. And that's been not an uncontroversial move because there are many people in the country, in the NLD, who want to see a return to democracy or want to see a return to the situation that we had before the coup, but still are very, at most, ambivalent over the Rohingya issue and the extent to which policy towards the Rohingya minority should be changed. In what you've been writing recently and what you've described to us today in this podcast, it's obviously a very worrying situation. But I think in what you've written recently, Dan, there's been some sense of optimism that the younger people of Myanmar do want to move on from this sort of ethnically divisive history that the country's had in recent times. Do you really feel optimistic that a sort of younger generation can emerge that can change these things and sort of complete this Herculean task, really, of turning around Myanmar's fortunes? I mean, I've lived in, in Myanmar for the last 10 years, and I've been incredibly impressed by nearly all of the young people that I've met in the country, both by their determination to work for their country, to change their country, to improve their country, and just by their skills and by their personalities. And I think you know, what's inevitable, the one thing that's inevitable in Myanmar is that there's going to be a generational shift. And the hope is that you know, the legacies of the past, whether it's colonial legacies, the legacies of military rule, or these very negative dynamics that we've been talking about of the past 10, 20, 30 years, and these kinds of political fights deeply rooted, that this new generation can overcome them and really kind of break free of those legacies. And I think in this period over the past six months, in this new kind of very febrile, but also almost revolutionary environment, that you do see young people who do want to break free of those legacies and move in a different direction that's going to be much more inclusive, that is going to move beyond these kind of ethnic divides into a society that's much more fair and, and equitable. Now, how they get to that point from where we are now in the kind of failed state situation where the army is still very much in charge of much of the country, all of the different things that we've been talking about, it's not easy to see. It's certainly not going to be a straight path. It's not going to take months. It's going to take years. But that generational change is, is inevitable. And I guess what's so important right now is to protect and preserve and encourage and support those, especially young people, who are trying to move in a different direction towards what's going to be nothing less than a transformation of society as well as state institutions. So that sounds like a massive kind of endeavor. But without that, I think you're just going to see a Myanmar that is not just a failed state that's really bad for its own people, but a failed state that's terrible for the region, which is going to be a center of disease, of environmental degradation, of potentially refugees in the future, you know, for ASEAN, for China, for India. It's a disaster. And so 
I mean, this is the time to kind of work for change. And I think at the center of that has to be support for the young generation in Myanmar. Yeah, because I suppose, on the other hand, even if Myanmar returned to the status quo before the coup in the short to medium term, the country's military would still play a pretty major role in the country's politics. Is there, though, a realistic future for Myanmar, which involves less of a role for the military? Or is it fated to become a bit like neighboring Thailand, where you have these periods of democracy and then the military step in for a while? Or, you know, could it be just that the military is set for another long period of rule that it had from the 1950s and 60s onwards? Well, the Myanmar military, which is one of the biggest militaries in the world, isn't just going to disappear because people sort of will it. And it's been autonomous really since independence in 1948 and been central to Myanmar politics for, you know, for generations. But I think we have to think back over the past 10 years. And over the past 10 years, we did reach a, a situation where the army was generally divorced from the day-to-day government of the country. Since 2011, economic policy, foreign relations, health education policy, the budget, central bank, everything was more or less independent of the army. And so it is possible to reach a point where, okay, the army still has an enormous kind of influence over the security sector and is autonomous, but the rest of government is in civilian or elected hands. So at least that's possible. I'm not saying that that should be the aim, but at least that's possible. And I think what is also possible is to build on other kinds of dynamics like the peace process, like trying to find some eventual kind of accommodation, deal, arrangement with ethnic armed organizations in the country to finally begin a process towards moving towards genuine peace, to find a kind of different kind of nation building process to begin the kind of structural transformation of the economy that will really power not just growth, but inclusive growth over the future. I think all of these things, again, from where we are right now is not very easy, but we've seen over the past 10 years, it's not impossible to at least start moving in that direction. It's that kind of successful process towards peace, towards a different kind of multi-ethnic country, towards real development, economic development of the country that's going to kind of outflank this issue. And that's going to eventually lead to options that we don't have today. So I guess what I'm saying is, that, you know, head on, I don't think that the army is going to simply say we're going to give up and completely disappear. But I think we can reach some kind of medium term arrangement in which the army is no longer central to government and other processes are allowed to begin that transform the country that eventually will lead to different kinds of political futures. I think that's difficult, but at least I think that that's going to be possible. Before, for the time being, we've seen quite a number of Western countries impose sanctions on Myanmar. Now, six months after the coup, have all these sanctions proven to be effective at all? Or are they just simply exacerbating poverty within the country, for example? I think that they are symbolically important, but I don't think that they're very important beyond that so far, at least. I think that the economic effects of the pandemic, the coup, the things that we've talked about so far, I think those have had an enormous impact, not just on the economy and and daily life, but also on the business environment for foreign businesses in the country who are now all thinking about whether or not they should stay or should go. I think in that equation, sanctions are a very, very small part of the picture. I think that Western governments 
have been very careful to try to target the sanctions well. I think people have an understanding of the negative impacts that sanctions and broad sanctions had, uh, not just in Myanmar, but in other countries as well in the past, and so want to try to do things differently now. But at the end of the day, you know, this is an army that faces, and, and I think believes it faces, an existential crisis where they're trying to get to grips with what is effectively a popular uprising throughout the country. And so they're not going to change their basic strategy because of sanctions from the West. So this is not an army that's coming to power for economic reasons. This is an army that has now found itself facing an uprising and is trying to deal with it in the way that it knows how. So I don't think that the sanctions are having any effect. That doesn't mean that they might not in the future, but so far they're, they're a very small part of the equation. But what steps does the international community need to take next beyond the sanctions in order to induce effective change? I think the number one thing that has to happen that I think is you know, indispensable if the international side really wants to have any kind of positive impact on the future of Myanmar is a degree of coordination. If you have an international reaction where Russia does one thing, China does another, Japan does a third, ASEAN does a fourth, and the West does something else, the net result is going to be zero or worse. And you know, China is obviously an incredibly important country for Myanmar. And you have a situation where, on the one hand, the army is very distrustful of China. China is probably distrustful of the army to a certain point. I think the relations between China and the generals have never been that good over these past years. But at the same time, I think China has made a basic assessment that the army is there to stay, and these generals are probably there to stay. And just a reliance on China is probably going to be enough for this army regime to be able to survive over these coming years. Therefore, you need at least a degree of coordination between Western policy, China's policy, and ASEAN's policy to be able to get anywhere. And so far, I just don't see for all kinds of understandable reasons, if you look at the situation around the world and big crises now like in Afghanistan or even in Ethiopia, why it's not happening, but you need a level of high-level diplomatic investment to try to get that coordination happening, and, and that hasn't. And without that, it's just very difficult to see how different individual policies can really work. Yeah, and I guess it's not just China, but also another important player in Myanmar issue is Japan. Japan also refused to impose sanctions on Myanmar. And then I recall you recently warned that if not handled well, major powers might be all dragged into the situation in Myanmar. Could you expand on this a little bit? What would the situation look like if this happens? It's not difficult to imagine Western countries and maybe even Japan in the future or, or other non-Western countries looking to put more pressure on the military regime, whether it's through sanctions or something else. But then the question is, you know, sanctions towards what? And if the demand then is give up and, you know, hand over power, I just don't see a situation where the army is going to do that. So then you need some kind of other strategy, some other process, some other mechanism on the other side that's going to use that pressure and help to move things in a positive direction. So then you have ASEAN, and you have ASEAN that's been trying to engage with the military administration, with the generals, and try to start a process. And that's been incredibly difficult. So first question is, you know, will ASEAN achieve any kind of success? And will the rest of the world really come behind some kind of ASEAN process? And, and can that work? And we'll see. In the coming weeks, I think ASEAN will appoint an envoy or envoys, and we'll see if that process gets off the ground in any way. 
I think there's the possibility, at least, of the Security Council moving forward a step. I think China and the US have actually tried to work together to some extent on the Council. And I think we can't discount the importance of China, the US, and, and other big powers agreeing on some kind of basic framework for a way forward in support of ASEAN, perhaps at the UN Security Council. Now, I think if all of that doesn't happen, and it's possible that all of that doesn't happen or is not successful, then you get into a situation where everyone just kind of does the second best and kind of supports one side or another up to a point. And then you set things up for not a kind of proxy war, but just different sides kind of fueling an environment which just leads to more instability and a situation that continues in this kind of very negative inertia for many years to come. So I don't think that a Syria kind of civil war, you know, in the Myanmar case, China invades from one direction, Thailand from another, India from another. I don't think that's at all on the cards. But I think a situation where the international reaction is uncoordinated and people start to support different elements and different dynamics, and that just kind of really exacerbates the negative dynamics in the country, I think that's very possible in the years to come. Yeah, it really speaks to the need for diplomacy. Absolutely. This is a big problem of Myanmar in many ways. It's important enough that it gets a lot of attention, but it's not really important enough that it attracts that kind of really top-level diplomatic investment. And even if I think people were willing to kind of move a little bit in that direction of saying, okay, let's, let's try to help the situation. Let's try to fix the situation. And at the end of the day, you know, a failed state is not in the interest of anyone, West, East, North, or South. You have that additional element of Myanmar's incredible complexity. So that, that combination, it's not really a top priority and it's incredibly complex, but it attracts a lot of attention. So the wrong move can also attract a lot of negative media coverage, a lot of criticism. I think that means that political leaders in different countries then tend to shy away from it more than they might otherwise. Related to this, the military government itself has recently complained about being called a hunter in the international media. It wants to be called a, a state administration council instead. Is it having any success in gaining legitimacy on the international stage, whether it's with China, with ASEAN, with any other countries or bodies? I think, you know, in a way, this insistence on not being called a junta is laughable in a way. I think what it points to is that they really want to have this narrative where it wasn't a coup, but they are acting within the emergency powers part of the constitution. So they're working within this constitution that was set up 10 years before. I think that points also to you know, what they kind of want to do, and it goes back to your question at the very beginning, which is not so much a complete reset of the past 10 years, but changes to the existing constitution with two additional elements. I think one is that they don't want Aung San Suu Kyi to be any more part of the political landscape. I think any other kind of set of political parties or even competitive politics that doesn't include her, I think they feel can be manageable and won't be a threat to them. And then I think secondly, they want to do what they feel their predecessors couldn't do, which is essentially win this civil war, the armed conflicts against ethnic armed organizations on their terms and, and reach some final peace deal or accommodation that will make that happen. So they're keen to have a kind of narrative that helps them move towards where they want to go. I think the issue of legitimacy, first inside the country, 
I think most people, because they voted overwhelmingly for the National League for Democracy, feel that the National League for Democracy and the CRPH, the group of MPs that set themselves up after the coup, are the legitimate or should be the legitimate authority of, of the country. And I don't think the military, given all the violence of the past months, has made a dent in kind of winning people over. Quite the opposite. I think it's pushed many people who are not even NLD supporters in a position against them. I think internationally, I think people are waiting to see what will happen. And I think most governments around the world have made a basic assessment now. Two things. One is that the army regime is not going to go away anytime soon. And secondly, that you know Myanmar may be a failed state, but it's not going to impact them too directly for now. And so they don't have to make any sort of big decisions necessarily at the moment. But, you know, many countries and all the big powers have embassies on the ground. They have ambassadors from Myanmar in their countries. The UN General Assembly is going to have to decide on Myanmar's seat before the September session of the General Assembly. So at some point, people are going to have to make some basic decisions. And I think if nothing changes, I think a number of countries will begin to accept ambassadors and that will shift things in a certain direction. I think the key moment, though, may come in early September, the second week of September, when the Credentials Committee of the UN General Assembly is going to have to decide on Myanmar's seat. Well, thank you so much for all of your insights today, Thant, and for bringing us up to date on the situation six months after this seizure of power by the military in Myanmar. Obviously, a very complex, very worrying situation, but I think you've also given us some, some glimmers of optimism down the road somewhere for the country. So. Thank you for taking part and joining us again. I'm sure we'll look to come back to you in the future to get more updates on the situation of Myanmar. Thank you to my co-host today, Vincent, as well, and to our producer, Rebecca Bailey. Thank you to Alexander Lestrange again for doing the music for Asia Matters. You can get in touch with us. We have a website, asiamatterspod.com. We have a Twitter account, at asiamatterspod please leave us a review on your favorite podcast listening platform. It's lovely to have your feedback. It's lovely to know what you think about the shows and your thoughts about what we could or should be doing in in the future. So do contact us there. For the time being, though, thank you for listening and goodbye.